for people like Luke Brewer and Richard Thomason and Becky Jarrett <laughs> who can put together something so, <laughs> so quickly <laughs> and uh, volunteer their time. And that goes for anybody that plays up here on a Sunday morning. Uh, sometimes you don't realize how much time it takes to do all of that. And it's time that they uh, graciously volunteer for your benefit and for mine. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how prone we are to wonder. How true that is of every last one of our hearts. When everything is good and grand and wonderful in our lives, we fall into pride thinking nothing can ever happen to us. When everything in our life is turned over, when our health goes, when circumstances don't fall like we think they should, we fall into despair, doubting your goodness. Our hearts are prone to wander. So Lord, we ask, that you take and seal them. Bind our wandering hearts to you. That we would never leave. That we would never stray. That the last thing we would do is curse the day you saved us. Seal our hearts for your course, for your worship, for your name. Amen. Open your Bibles if you have them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Matthew 5, 1 to 3. Everyone has a room in their house, or at least an area in your house, that you don't want anybody to see. For some of us, that's a closet. I will applaud you. For some of us, it's a room. For some of us, it might be a garage. For us, it's upstairs. So if you come over, you're not allowed upstairs. You just need to know that before you ever walk in the door. In fact, the reason we got a two-story house was so that we could keep the bottom floor clean and the top floor, we could do with whatever we want. Nobody will ever know because you're not allowed up there. <laughs> Everyone's got a, a place in their house. They don't want people. 
We're entering into the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount is because there was a mount. Jesus got on it and he preached a sermon. They didn't have clever titles back then. I don't know. He might have had some cool graphics, but I doubt it. He just preached a sermon on the mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to show up to all of our houses unannounced. He's going to knock, knock like a cop, search warrant in hand, and he's going to walk into our house searching every single closet for any sinful residue. For any evidence of the crime. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, he's going to find it. Even if you tell him, no, that wasn't me. Even if you want to ignore the things that he finds, he's still going to find it. And every single one of us are going to be guilty. We're going to look today at just the first three verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Look with me at our text. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This morning, our main concern is with the phrase, poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And we're going to be looking at it from two different angles, really. One is to determine what it absolutely doesn't mean, and then the other is to determine what it does mean. And then at the end of that, why does that matter for us? Why do Jesus' words here actually matter for our lives today? But before we dive into that, what I want to look at first is what's actually happening in the Sermon on the Mount itself as a whole. What's happening with these first 12 verses that we call the Beatitudes? What, what, what's Jesus doing there? Well, see, Jesus begins teaching the crowd. Now remember, here is a man who has just been, in the previous passage, healing a paralytic, healing the paralyzed, casting out demons, curing illnesses of all kinds. And so people are naturally inclined to hear what this man has to say. This man's already told them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like we saw in the previous couple of passages. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So imagine what you're like if you're sitting there as a paralyzed person and Jesus comes in and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he tells you, rise and walk. And all of a sudden you have feeling in your legs and you can get up from a mat and you begin to walk. You've piqued my interest. You got my attention. Tell me more about this kingdom. So naturally, people are wanting to hear more about the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to introduce it to them. I'm going to define it for you. I'm going to describe it for you. Here is what the kingdom of heaven is. But he starts with a description of the citizens 
of the kingdom of heaven. So these first 12 verses that are typically referred to as the Beatitudes, it's all the blesseds that you see down there. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, as you go down the list. When you see the Beatitudes, what we need to think of is that these are a description of the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, really, is going to show what the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven really are. How they identify sin. What they call sin. How they respond to it. How they live. Now, Jesus is coming in bringing this kingdom. What's your natural assumption about its citizens? What would you think of its citizens? Here's Jesus. He can heal people with diseases of all kinds. He can get, make the paralytic people get up and walk. Here's Jesus. He, ha- he clearly is bringing a kingdom which far surpasses the kingdom that we now live in. He can do all things. This kingdom is far beyond anything that I live in now or have ever known. So here's Jesus, the king of this kingdom, walking into the crowd of people and telling them who can be his citizens. Who's he going to pick? Oh, he should get his pick of the litter. Whomever he wants. Where does he start? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He'll go on in subsequent weeks that we'll see. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be comforted. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, you have it all wrong. See, you picked, or sorry, you're in charge of picking people that are going to comprise your military in this kingdom. You you get your pick of the kind of people that are going to be your governors and your magistrates in your kingdom. You get your pick of who's going to be your working class in your kingdom. And you picked the poor? You, you picked those who mourn? You picked the meek? I, I think Matthew typed this in an autocorrected or something. Because that's surely not what Jesus really meant here. You mean the strong. I think you mean the rich. I think you mean the proud. Those are surely the people that you're going after. Now, beyond that, think about the society that Jesus is preaching in. Here's a culture of Jewish unrest. The Roman army is ruling them right now. And the assumption is that the Messiah is going to march in and he's going to bring his kingdom. And what is he going to do? He's going to unseat Rome. He's going to overrule their authority. The poor? We're not going to do it with the poor. Are you serious? We need military might. We need strength. We need wealth. 
the citizen of the kingdom of heaven surely must be the strongest person if this kingdom is going to have staying power. Now, if you and I were to build a kingdom that we wanted to endure, then we might construct something like Sparta, where everyone's a warrior. All the men, 20 to 60, they're going to battle. They're going to constantly lift weights. Take human growth hormone. We need all the strength we can get. But when Jesus lays out the qualifications for a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, he seems to be calling the opposite. He seems to be calling the poor in spirit, not the strong. He's calling the meek in the morning. Values of the kingdom of heaven are upside down from the values. Throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, all of Matthew 5 to 7, he is going to be systematically tearing us apart limb by limb before he builds us back up again. And all of those who are standing there listening to Jesus, who are thinking to themselves, I qualify for his kingdom. Surely I am qualified to be in his kingdom. In the end are going to be very upset. Because Jesus isn't looking for the qualified. He's not looking for the fantastic. He's not looking for the awesome. He's looking for the broken, the sick, and the weak. And the churches that are consumed with love for Christ are filled to the brim with these. But let's look at what he means by the phrase poor in spirit. First, let's look at what he doesn't mean. When we say things like broken, like sick, and weak, and poor, now we can be misled into thinking that Jesus is talking about things that are physical. So when he says broken, we think physically broken, that we've had bad things happen to us lately. Or, or sick, we think physically sick, that we're in poor health. Physically weak, that we're too old to take care of ourselves, that somebody has to take care of us. That we're physically poor, that we don't have much money. Is that what Jesus is talking about? That's what you have to be? Now, if we think that when Jesus uses the language throughout this gospel of sick and poor and weak, that he's speaking about physical things strictly, then we've missed the boat. Particularly here, he says, poor in spirit. But spiritual poverty, listen, spiritual poverty doesn't mean physical poverty. Spiritual poverty doesn't mean physical poverty. Now, it's important that we understand also what Luke says about this. So we're going to get into to Luke. You don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen behind you. It's Luke chapter 6, verse 20, where Luke actually goes through his own Beatitudes, and he gives to us what Christ says in his own words, or in, in, uh, in a different sermon entirely. Jesus is preaching here in what we call in Luke the Sermon on the Plain. Sorry. I don't know. That was probably my fault. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well, for, well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Luke says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now you notice that's completely different than what Matthew says. Matthew says the spiritually poor, poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. While Luke just says, blessed are you who are, who are poor. Now, why is there a difference between the two? So in Luke, right after he gives the Beatitudes or the, the blesseds, he then gives the woes. So the woes are essentially the exact opposite of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, but then if you go down to the woes, but woe to you who are rich, he says. So they're just the opposite of the Beatitudes. So first, let's, let's understand this. When Jesus gives the blesseds in both Matthew and Luke, he's not describing different people. He's not describing people, some, some people which are, are, are meek, some people mourn. Some people are poor in spirit. He's not describing different people. This isn't a personality test. All right? It's not like we're strong in one area and we're weak in another. It's not like we're going to stand in front of the judgment seat of God and he's going to say, okay, you were really good at being poor in spirit, so here is your kingdom of heaven. But you over here, you were meek, so here is your earth. That's, that's not how it works. He's describing one characteristic. It's all one group of people. It's all one uh, 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 set of characteristics describing the same people, those who inherit God's kingdom. It's a character profile that he's building. These kinds of people that inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the same is true of the woes in Luke. This is also a character profile. And when you get down to the end of that list of the character profile, you see what kind of person this is that he's describing. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So the, the, the kind of rich person that we're looking at here is the kind of person that's well-fed, that's laughing, that, that goes after uh, uh, prosperity that seeks after the, the wealth of kings. He yucked it up with the fat cats. He's, he's feasting on the finest foods, and he's claiming to speak on behalf of God to the kings. But he really has no interest in the things of God whatsoever. All he has interest in doing is pleasing the rich so that he can be like them, so that he can be welcomed into their courts. He's just like a false prophet. The exact same thing. He never has words of condemnation for the kings. It's always things that are in favor of the king. 
He's always seeking to please. So this is the kind of person that Jesus has in mind here. It's not simply somebody that's blessed financially. That would rule out people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, virtually any of those church fathers in the Old Testament. He has a spiritual condition in mind. A condition of the soul. A condition that would lead one to pursue wealth and material goods and all kinds of things that he can have on this earth. Living it up now. Eating, drinking, and making merry for tomorrow we die. He's a fool. The same is true when Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He has in mind a spiritual condition that's characteristic of someone in need. Now, Coming back to Matthew, you'll remember there's a story that takes place in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus encounters this rich uh, man. And he says to this rich man, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And the young man walks away sad. And the text says, for he had great possessions. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes those that are living hand to mouth, always in physical need, understand what it's like to be in spiritual need. That makes sense to them. So it's not as though physical poverty and spiritual poverty have nothing to do with one another. They're just not one and the same either. In the American West, the prosperity gospel is probably our greatest export. The prosperity gospel basically says God will bless you for your faithfulness and your obedience and he will bless you in terms of health, wealth, and prosperity. And if you aren't healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, then there must be something wrong with what you're doing. It teaches that you can do certain things, essentially, to put God in your debt. So he owes you health and wealth and prosperity. Well, God, I'm doing all of these things that you asked of me. Shouldn't I be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous? And you'll hear people like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and T.D. Jakes and a litany of other people that will continue to peddle this kind of heresy. And oddly enough, the only one that actually gets prosperous out of the deal are the ones that peddle the message. And they usually get prosperous off the backs of the poor people that just continue to get poorer and poorer and poorer. They're two-bit hucksters. Don't listen to them. Turn the TV off. Amen. Read a better book. <laughs> but there's a lesser known, but no less heretical, poverty gospel. You may not have heard this one, the poverty gospel. This basically says that God is always on the side of the poor, no matter what. He is always on the side of the disenfranchised, no matter what. No matter what kind of person this is, he is always on their side. He is always looking after them. And if you want to be looked after by God, then you too need to reject all forms of possession or prosperity except for just the barest essentials. And you'll hear false teachers like Jen Hatmaker, Tony Jones, 
people that are in the emergent church movement peddle this kind of false gospel. If you are poor, then God is always on your side. He's always against the rich. Now, in America, especially with some of the younger generations, the prosperity gospel is waning and the poverty gospel is taking off. But it's just a ditch on the other side of the road. It's just as false. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, He's not talking about physical poverty. So then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, coming back to Matthew, He doesn't just say poor. He says poor in spirit. What does it mean to be in spiritual poverty? Very plainly, spiritual poverty means you are entirely dependent on God for righteousness. You're entirely dependent on God for righteousness. In the Old Testament, the term poor is closely associated with the idea of being lowly. And so sometimes the same word could be translated poor or lowly. And there's there's two verses in Isaiah that I think capture what I'm saying here. One is Isaiah 57, 15. He says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So this is God speaking. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly or poor spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly or poor and to revive the heart of the contrite. Then again, he says in Isaiah 66, 2, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite or poor in spirit and trembles at my word. Now what kind of of person is being singled out in, in these verses? Not someone who's merely physically poor, but someone who takes the position of humility and lowliness. Someone who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy. D.A. Carson said it best, it's the conscious confession of unworth before God. It's the conscious confession of unworth before God. So the poor in spirit are those those that come before God and they recognize that there is no reason that He should look upon me. There's nothing that I've done that should cause Him to be in my debt. I have no right to be at this table. I have no spiritual status that He should take note of me. Now it doesn't mean that I'm a worthless piece of garbage either. It means that I see myself as a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I'm disqualified for sit, from sitting at the Lord's table. Now, the tentacles of the Beatitudes, all of them that are listed there, those tentacles reach through the Gospel of Matthew. And what we see is that they'll, they be, they're exemplified in various characters that Jesus will call out throughout the story. They will exhibit for us these kinds of behaviors that we're looking at. And commonly, especially in the book of Matthew, we have the sinners and the tax collectors demonstrating a a poor spirit. 
And the opposite is also true. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees exhibit the opposite kind of response of a poor spirit. Someone who's, I guess you would say, rich in spirit. Remember there's that scene in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees come along and they say to his disciples, why, why is he eating with these people? Why is he eating with these scoundrels? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he hears what they're saying, and he turns around and he says, what? It's not the healthy that need the physician, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's calling them to repentance. They're sick. They recognize their sickness. And I am calling them to repentance. Not physically sick, sin sick. Their soul is sick. And I'm calling them to repentance. They recognize that their status is among the dead. And I am calling them out. They realize that they need a physician. Now true enough, the words poor in spirit, they don't occur again in the rest of the gospel of Matthew. But in addition to the sinners and tax collectors, we also see Jesus calling out the little ones. He'll pray out loud that he's thankful to the Lord, that he has revealed to the little ones this truth. And then there's the famous scene where the disciples are debating back and forth as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Having this debate about, I'm, the, I'm definitely going to be the greatest, I'm definitely going to be the greatest. And Jesus knowing their thoughts, hearing their arguments, whatever it is, he turns the table on them. And remember what he does? He brings a child in their presence. And he says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, what does he mean, turn and become like children? How can I turn and become like a child? He tells you in the next verse, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, friends, you need to adjust your way of thinking. You're thinking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But unless you realize that you have no claim to such status just because you're one of the twelve, unless you realize that all the miracles that you've seen how close you are to me. Unless you realize it, that doesn't get you any status in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even sniff the kingdom. So when Jesus uses the term little ones throughout Matthew, he's not referring to children. He's talking about people that are poor in spirit, people that assume that they are, have no right to be at the conversation of getting into the kingdom of heaven. That it's only by God's grace that they're here. These are the people that take the position of children at the table with adults. I'm not talking about in today's generation where children are the center of the universe. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in generations prior, literally every generation that's preceded ours where children were meant to be seen and not heard. They have no status. Zero at the adult's table. That's the position of one that is poor in spirit. That's the kind of person that is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, the reason that this is a big deal 
is because spiritual poverty is mortal enemies with self-righteousness. And every last one of us will struggle with self-righteousness. Every single person in this room. Now, very simply, self-righteousness is a claim of moral superiority. It's just a claim of moral superiority. And these claims of moral superiority, they could be things that I do. I homeschool my children. I go to church. I read my Bible. Or they could be things that we don't do. I don't drink, smoke, curse, or chew. And I don't date women that do. (laughs) We start to amass all of these good deeds. And before long, we start to look around at all of these good deeds that we've amassed and we say, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, if you really look at it, look at all these things that I've got in my corner. I, I treat others with respect. I give to charitable organizations, sometimes anonymously. There's giving to charity, and then there's giving anonymously. It's like more spiritual. I go to church. I love my neighbor. I mean, I would say I'm a pretty good person. Friends, here's the problem with all of that reasoning. When we begin to look around and take account of all the self-righteous deeds, the gospel begins to dissolve. Begins to disappear. See, if I'm pretty good, do I really need Jesus to die in my place? I mean, no pun intended, it seems like overkill. Seriously. Seems a bit extreme. Okay, well, if I'm pretty good, does hell seem like a fair punishment? No. Well, I'm not Hitler. So surely hell is too far. Let's not kid ourselves. We all know people, if we're not them, that aren't Christians, that we would say are pretty good people. They may be living in a lifestyle we don't agree with, but overall, they're pretty good people. They treat other people with respect. They're honest. They're kind. They're they're ethical at work, maybe. They do good things and, and good grief. I just don't see a world where God could send someone to hell for someone like that, especially. Someone that's so good. The problem is, we don't understand the full weight of sin. We don't understand it. See, the standard for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you know what it is? Jesus gives it to us at the end of this chapter. In verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Now, what prevents us 
from being able to meet that standard. Let me ask you, on your way here this morning, did you know the speed limit and did you break it? Well, this is Alabama. I haven't found anybody that speeds in Alabama. <laughs> if this was Texas, the whole room would be out, all right? <laughs> Even the children, they'd all, they'd all be out. Did you look at a person lustfully, with lust in your heart? If you weren't out with speeding, you're probably out there. We could go on a very short list, and we would probably find something at some point that all of us have done today. It's not even noon yet. And we're already out. And Jesus gives all of these things in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to find one at some point in the list that just disqualifies us completely from consideration of being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So it doesn't matter what self-righteous trophies I can stack up in my corner. I am unworthy of even being considered. When I was a kid, I used to love the Wile E. Coyote cartoons. Kids today don't even have a clue as to what that is, but the Wile E. Coyote cartoons were amazing. Those, those were some of my favorite. And in every episode, Wile E. Coyote would run off a cliff, and he would look at the camera, and he would wave bye-bye, and he would plummet a thousand feet all the way down. But occasionally, there were some times where the camera would follow him all the way down, and he'd be holding something like a rock or an anvil, and you watch him try to get on top of this rock or this anvil, trying to stand on top of it as he's falling to the ground. As if by some way of getting on top of this thing, he's going to improve his position. So that maybe he won't have to hit the ground, or maybe he can get back to the dry land that he left. Friends, all of us are in a free fall. And the little self-righteous deeds that we try to accomplish and stack up in our corner are in a free fall with us. And they're interwoven with all kinds of self-righteous sin. I can no more improve my position before God than the coyote can get back on dry land by standing on top of the falling anvil. I don't need more self-righteous deeds to stand on top of as we're both falling. I need someone to catch me. I need someone to take me by the arm and put me on solid ground. Church God, by virtue of Christ's righteousness, has caught you and has placed you on solid ground. Now, now that I have His righteousness, not only am I on solid ground, but that same rock, that same good deed that was falling with me, now allows me to please God. Not because I'm so good, 
but because the deed is on the foundation of Christ's righteousness. He enabled it. He provided it. He gave it. They don't improve my position before God. Christ already gave me that standing. They simply allow me to please Him. Paul says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. With faith, it is possible. Because of Christ's righteousness. So being poor in spirit is realizing that I'm in a free fall. And that the rest of the good deeds are in a free fall with me. And that God has no reason to actually catch me. He doesn't have to catch me. He could let me fall and hit the ground and he'd be perfectly justified in doing so. Being poor in spirit is when I realize how fortunate I am that he caught me. Yes. Yes. How fortunate am I that he caught me. So what do I do? What do I do with this? How am I supposed to respond? To this call to be poor in spirit. You notice a, a theme running through the Gospel of Matthew? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why do you think Jesus and John the Baptist and then later in Acts and the apostles will do the same thing? They'll repeat this mantra over and over and over again. Repent, 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 repent. Seems like a conclusion of every single one of their sermons. As it, as it has been mine. Because confession and repentance of sin is the solution to self-righteousness. It's the picture of someone truly poor in spirit who beats their chest and says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a reason why at the end of every service, we have a moment of time where we can think about God's words, we can meditate on the meaning of it, and we can confess sin that we're dealing with. It's because we want to be people that inherit the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, we want to be people that inherit the kingdom of God. And in order to be people that inherit the kingdom of God, we respond to the conviction that He gives to us in our heart. Confession and repentance. So what do you do? First thing I would say do is repent. Second, I would say forgive. You know that there are people in your life that have offended you greatly. Maybe even more than they realize, but they've been a great offense to you. And their offenses may make it really difficult to get along with them. Or even to forgive them. Or maybe even to be around them. But I want you to imagine yourself in a free fall. And God could have let you hit the ground. But instead he moved through his son. To catch you. 
Now, think of that person and realize they were in a free fall too. And maybe they still are. They were in the same state as you. They're imperfect. They're fallen. And there's one thing that we see time and time again as Jesus points to your forgiveness that you have in Him. He says, forgive others. Even as you have been forgiven, forgive others. The last thing I would say is be known. Be known. Some of you will come in here on Sunday morning and we're grateful that you do. You join us here and we're, 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 we're very grateful. Sometimes you'll join us in worship and then leave. And while we're grateful that you're here, and we'd rather you be here than not in church at all, for sure. At the same time, the scriptures don't depict lone wolf Christians. They depict people that lean heavy on the body. That allow themselves to be known because that's where sin is exposed. That get to know others. Quite frankly, the intention is that you rub each other the wrong way. Because that's one of the gracious gifts God has given to us to be conformed into the image of His Son is to have to deal with difficulties with other people. So in our church, we would say church membership is one of those ways to actually commit to the body that you've been coming to for so long. You say, I want to be a part of this and I want to give the body permission to call me out where they see I'm being rich in spirit and not poor in spirit. And I want to join in that process with them as well and help them as well. The other thing I would say is we have small groups that meet on Sunday morning on campus. I would recommend you being a part of one to allow a group of adults a closer look at your life to be examined, to be helped. The hope is that we would all be characterized by spiritual poverty. A body that lets go of its own self-righteousness and depends totally on the righteousness of Christ. So I'm going to pray for us at the close of this sermon. Our ushers are going to come forward and they're going to begin passing out the offering. I want us, as they do, to think about what God is calling us to confess. What God is calling us to come clean of. What He's asking us to lay in front of Him. To be open about. And turn loose of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you would bring to our minds people that we need to forgive. People that we need to see are fallen 
and that need forgiveness as much as we do. Pray, Lord, that you would bring to mind sins, sins that hide in our heart, go unconfessed, maybe because we don't think they're that serious, maybe because we forget, or maybe because we just intentionally want to ignore them. Bring those to our minds. We can lay them before your feet. Rid our conscience of the guilt that still remains. In Jesus' name, amen.